following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 4. Before we begin, though, I'll tell you just a little bit about myself. We'll get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, I'm at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Been there for about two years now. My wife, Bree, and I moved down there in the fall, in August of 2021. We moved about a week before Hurricane Ida hit. Uh, so we moved, and then we packed up, went home for a couple weeks, and then came back. And we've been here ever since. And we love living in New Orleans. It certainly has its uh, unique uh, parts and unique things there in New Orleans, but we love it. We love doing ministry there. Uh, I'm a student at the seminary, but I also serve in a staff position. I'm the director of our Mission Lab program. So what we do is we host groups from all over the country coming to do mission work in the city of New Orleans. We host them on our campus, uh, plan their activities for them, hook them up with ministry sites, and serve alongside them in the city. So that's what I do. I love getting to do that. Uh, my wife, Bree, she's a school counselor. Uh, she, Once we moved down here, she finished up her master's degree from LSU, and she is a counselor at a school there in New Orleans and is loving that. Um, for you ladies, I was excited to see that Tara Dew is going to be speaking at the women's event here in a couple weeks. Uh, Tara Dew is the wife of our president, Jamie Dew, and we love them. Uh, Tara has been sort of a mentor to my wife over the last couple years, and so I have no doubt that you'll be blessed by that event. I hope you're able to make it. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, we'll be reading verse 1 through 4 this morning, but I want you to, I want you to imagine as we begin, that I was going to preach you a sermon over the whole Old Testament this morning, from the very beginning in Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. First of all, we would probably be here a while, so I'm not going to do that to you. I want to get all of you out on time for lunch. But if I was, one of the first things that people tell you about preaching is the importance of the introduction. When you begin to learn how to preach, whether it be from a mentor or a professor or a pastor, whatever it is, the first thing they'll tell you is that how you begin your sermon is extremely important. You must be engaging. You must speak in a way that makes people want to listen to you. And you should give your audience a picture of what the main idea of your sermon is going to be so that they know what to be listening for. And so that the whole sermon makes sense and it comes together as a whole. So if I was going to preach to you this morning a sermon on the whole Old Testament, what would my introduction be in order to grab your attention and communicate these main ideas? Well, we find that here in the first couple of verses of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews happens to be a sermon about the Old Testament. Many scholars through research, they've decided that the book of Hebrews, what it actually is, is a written sermon written to a group of people. And what we find in the book of Hebrews is all of the major themes of the Old Testament explained and then how we see them fulfilled in Jesus. What the book of Hebrews makes clear over and over again is that Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of everything that we find in the Old Testament. 
And so these four verses that we're going to read this morning, this is, in a way, the introduction of the sermon of the whole Old Testament. And I hope as we read it this morning, we'll leave this place with a better understanding of God's Word, how He's revealed Himself to us, and what he, how He wants us to live our lives. Let's read the text together, I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. I pray that as we read your word this morning, as we study a passage of scripture that is deep and in some ways complex and Maybe a passage that we've never studied before. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. That we would let your word shape us. That we as a church would be a people of the book. Who let it define how we live our lives and what we do. I pray that you be with me this morning, God, as I teach and as I preach Let nothing unholy or nothing wrong or divisive or anything like that, God, come out of my mouth. And if it does, I pray that it will be called out and that I would repent in front of these people. So in your name we pray. Amen. All right, before we get started, let's let's nail down some things that we need to know if we're going to understand Hebrews. Hebrews is essentially a written sermon sent in the form of an epistle or a letter, right? We know what an epistle is or the letters of the New Testament. A majority of our New Testament is made up of these letters that are written primarily by Paul, but also by a few other individuals. And when it comes to Hebrews, we don't know who the author is. There are many theories on who wrote Hebrews, with the two most popular being Paul and Luke. Some others say Barnabas or maybe somebody else. We truly don't know. There's nothing conclusive to tell us that who wrote this letter. And that's okay because it really makes no difference on the meaning of the text. In fact, we should trust that for a good reason, God hasn't told us who wrote it. We don't know what that reason may be. But the chief picture that we get in Hebrews, the main idea that we'll come away with if we read the book as a whole, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is king. He's better than all of these other things. So doesn't it make sense that for the author of a letter with that theme, that Jesus is better, for that author to be anonymous? So that we don't worship the author over who it is that's being written about. What we do know is that Hebrews was originally written to Christians who were of Jewish descent, meaning that they grew up in and around the customs of Judaism, which helps explain the content of Hebrews. 
which helps us to understand that. The content of Hebrews is made up of the major themes and ideas of the Old Testament, something that non-Jewish people would have had no clue about and had no interest in. The author is trying to get this audience, these Jewish Christians, and by extension us this morning, to rightly see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises and the words of God in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at two truths this morning that we find here in these first four verses. The first one is this, God reveals and redeems through his word. God reveals and redeems through his word. Look back there at verse 1 in the first part of verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The author of Hebrews begins his letter in a format that should remind us of Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, some of the first verses that a lot of us probably memorized as young Christians. In Genesis 1-1, we are told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1-1, we are told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is no surprise then, and no accident, that Hebrews 1-1, if it's going to be speaking about the Old Testament, and what God was doing, and how He's done something better now with Jesus, it should make us make no surprise that Hebrews 1-1 hits on several of these same themes. The author tells us that long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our prophets, to our fathers through the prophets. Like Genesis and John, Hebrews 1-1 sets us at the very beginning of creation and teaches us about how God has related to his creation from the very beginning. What becomes immediately clear to us from all these, all these passages, but especially Hebrews 1-1, is that our God is a speaking God. God has not been silent to his people. In fact, not only has he just spoken to us, but he has spoken to us in many times and in many ways. He is overflowing with speaking to us. The author specifically mentions the prophets here, but what he's doing is broadly referring to all the ways in which God spoke to his people in the Old Testament. God spoke through creation. He spoke it into being with his word and it became light. God spoke through his laws. He spoke through his prophets and his judgments. God in the Old Testament spoke through a still small voice. And God even spoke through a donkey. In many times and in many ways, God has been consistently a speaking God. He is personal. His goal is for people, for us, to know Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, and He accomplishes this through speaking. For years, decades, centuries, God spoke through various ways and used various different mouthpieces. But now, the author tells us, God is doing a new thing. Where he was speaking through many ways and many mouthpieces and at many times before, now God is going to speak through one voice. And it's going to be a better voice than any that have gone before. It tells us, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. 
Notice a few things here. First, though God has spoken to us through many ways, now that he's spoken through his son, it does not negate or it does not get rid of the previous ways. The author of Hebrews does not say what God spoke before through the prophets was bad, but what God has spoken through the son is good. No, he reaffirms that what God spoke before was truly his word, but now we have something better. Now we have God himself in human flesh speaking to us. Both the Old and the New Testament are the word of God. They're divinely inspired, inerrant, and they're authoritative for us. Secondly, notice that he says that God has now spoken to us. He's writing the book of Hebrews to third generation Christians who had never seen Jesus with their own eyes or heard him with their own ears, just like us. So what he's speaking to these people, it applies to us just as much as it applies to them. There's nothing separating them and us when it comes to the access to God's word. He has spoken, so we must follow it. Lastly, notice the finality of this. Yes, God may have spoken in other ways in the past, but now he has spoken through his son with finality and fulfillment. We'll get more into that later in the sermon. But what becomes immediately clear to us is that God uses his word, God speaks in order to reveal himself to us and to redeem us. When God speaks, his word tells us things about his character. Just think back to the Old Testament and the holiness we learn about God through his laws and commandments. Think about all of God's laws in the Old Testament. Think about the Ten Commandments. How many of those Ten Commandments do we so easily break on a day-to-day basis? And yet that is God communicating to us his holiness and his perfection. We learn about God's power and his sovereignty through speaking creation into existence. We learn about God's love for his people through the prophets like Hosea. Not only do we learn about God's character through his word, but we learn about his salvation. When God speaks, he calls his people to faith. And this is going to become even more clear when God speaks through his son, who comes as the fulfillment of everything that God has spoken in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes, the disciples realize that he alone has the words of eternal life, as we read in John 6. And the scripture is clear that the way to salvation and redemption is through God's words. That's how we can know how to receive eternal life. If it were up to us... Would any of us ever achieve salvation had God not told us what to do? If God had not spoken to us through his son and through his word and said that all those who believe, all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved, had God not spoken that to us, we'd all be wandering around like a chicken with our head cut off not knowing what to do. This is how other religions with other fake false gods live their lives. Other religions have no assurance of their salvation because their God has not spoken to them. Their God is not personal to them. 
Their God has not told them what they must do. So we should be thankful and grateful and count it a blessing that our God speaks to us. And we can't take that lightly. The redemption that God promises in the Old Testament, we find fulfilled and realized in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to the second truth that we'll see through the rest of the passage this morning. God reveals and redeems through His Son. Just like God revealed Himself and showed us the way to redemption through His Word, God has now revealed Himself and shows us redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. The first verse tells us that God spoke sovereignly in many times and in many ways, but He spoke finally and uniquely in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the second part of the Trinity. The author of Hebrews is about to spend the next several verses magnifying and showing us the glory of God through the person and the work of the Son. From the second half of verse seven, of verse two through verse four, the author gives seven affirmations about the person, the work, and the status of the, of the Son. We find seven phrases of the author describing who Jesus is. Let's look at them one by one, and then we'll look at the picture that they paint as a whole. I'll tell you this morning, church, these seven affirmations are deep. They have, we could spend weeks just going through these couple of verses and mining out all the glories that are there in God's Word. We're not going to do that this morning. It's going to be a very quick run through of them. But I would challenge you to go back and read and do some further study on your own of these couple verses in Hebrews. It will astonish you what all is there. The first affirmation we see in these couple verses is this. Whom he appointed heir, the heir of all things. So he says, whom he, speaking of God, appointed the heir, the heir of all things, being the Son Here the author is affirming the inheritance that the Son has in relation with the Father and the power and authority that comes with it. Think of it this way. Think of it like the Son who inherits the family business. If you'll think back to the story of the prodigal son, the parable there that most of us are familiar with, the Son leaves the family He abandons his family, takes off his inheritance, his money, runs away with it, wastes it. And then when he returns, the father who sees him coming is so joyous that his son has returned. What does he do? He says, get a robe, get a ring, and get shoes. For my son that was dead is now alive. The robe and the ring and the shoes are signs of being a son. They're signs of the authority that comes with being a part of the family. With these symbols, with the robe, the ring, the shoes, the son has the authority. He has the ability to conduct business on behalf of the family and rule with whatever authority the family has. So what the author is telling us is that Jesus... The Son of God is the heir of God, so Jesus has all the authority that God has because they are together. That's the first one. The second one, through whom he also created the world. Here the author is affirming the work of the Son in creation. 
John tells us that Jesus was there in creation as the Word, right? The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Son was present at creation and He was the agent that the Father used in creation to speak all this into being. So Jesus is the heir of all things. He created all things. The third, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. God, who up until this point nobody had been able to put their eyes on, who because of His glory, a sinner looking at Him will be killed, now that God has come into human flesh as Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the visible image of God in His glory. He is God Himself. He is the exact imprint of His nature, meaning that He is equally God and of the same nature. Everything about Him is the same. They have the same will, the same power, the same holiness, etc. Fourth, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The Son, Jesus Christ, has power and authority over all of creation. And He upholds it by His word. The universe only continues to exist as long as the Son wills it to happen. He is holding all things in his hands. What was this? He's got the whole wide world in his hands. Was that learned that as a child? All things in creation happen under his power and under his authority. Therefore, in Matthew twenty eight, eighteen through twenty, what we know is the Great Commission, when Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, we can know that it's true. He truly does have authority over all things. Fifth, making purification for sin. This idea of purification is going to become a major theme throughout the rest of Hebrews, especially when the author begins talking about Jesus as the great high priest. In the Old Testament, the priest would make purification for the sins of the people through the sacrificial system. But in the New Testament, Jesus Jesus made purification for his people by offering up himself and paying the price for sin in his own flesh. Six, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here the author is making a reference to Psalm uh, 110 verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. This Old Testament verse is the verse most frequently referenced in the New Testament. And the New Testament writers use it to speak of Jesus. The idea of being seated at the right hand is one of honor and respect and power. It is also because he is seated at the right hand of the Father that Jesus can intercede for us as Romans 8:34 tells us. And then number 7 is this, having become as much superior to the angels. Though angels were powerful spiritual beings, we would be foolish to believe that they are on an equal playing field with Jesus. When the author says that Jesus became superior to the angels, he's not saying that there was a point in time where he was not superior, that he was inferior. Instead, as Hebrews 2.9 tells us, in just a few verses, Jesus willingly gave himself up, gave up the appearance of being lower for a time, 
in order to come to us in his flesh and to save us from our sins through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Following his ascension back to heaven, Jesus retook his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And his very name is proof enough that he is more excellent than the angels. So what does all this mean? Why does the author tell us these things about Jesus? He's showing us how God reveals himself to us and redeems us through the person, the work, and the status of the Son. The Son reveals the Father as the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The Son redeems us by making purification for our sin. And he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. The Son protects us by upholding the universe by the word of his power and by governing over the angels. These affirmations, these truths about Jesus are setting the precedent for what the rest of Hebrews is going to show us. As I've told you before, the major theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Throughout the letter, everything keeps coming back to that. That Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. Next, we'll see that Jesus is better than Moses. We'll see later on that Jesus is the better high priest. And that Jesus is the better sacrifice. Over and over again, Scripture is clear to us that Jesus is better. And this introduction to Hebrews is setting the stage for us to see that. Remember who this letter is being originally written to. These are Jewish Christians who grew up with all the customs and traditions and laws of the Old Testament. And these are not necessarily bad things. God spoke them into being so they can't be bad. But now we have something better. When Jesus comes, he establishes a better, a new covenant with his people. The author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to his people the foolishness of abiding by the old covenant when a new and a better covenant stands before them. How foolish would these people be to not recognize God in the flesh speaking to them and say, no, we're going to keep doing it the way we've always done it. This is Jesus coming to them and he's saying, Do you remember back in Numbers 21 when you were in the desert and God said, look up at the bronze serpent and you'll be healed? Do you remember God saying that? He was talking about me. Foreshadowing the day when Jesus would be raised up on the cross and we look to him to be healed and saved for our sins. Jesus is saying, do you remember the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks about in his prophecy? The servant who is going to become, who's going to come, who is going to be beaten, who you wouldn't even recognize, who is going to be punished for the sins of all the people so that they could be set free. Do you remember the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke about? That's me. Do you remember Hosea who redeemed Gomer even though she was an unfaithful spouse? She kept returning and leaving 
over and over again for affair after affair after affair. Do you remember Gomer, the unfaithful wife? That's you. And I'm Hosea, the one who's going to redeem you. Over and over again, Jesus is unfolding what God spoke in the Old Testament and saying, it leads to me. It all finds its fulfillment in me. So place your faith in me alone. So what does this mean for us? What does these four verses that we've studied this morning, how does that have any effect on our day-to-day life? I think in a few ways. I think we're all tempted towards one extreme or the other. I think the first extreme that we as Christians in the year 2023 are tempted towards is to act like our Bible starts in Matthew and not in Genesis. Right? We stay away from the Old Testament because maybe it doesn't make as much sense to us. The names are hard to pronounce. There's all these tribes that we're not sure how to say. It's a little bit confusing, maybe a little scary, hard to understand. So we're going to stay away from the Old Testament and never never pay any attention to it. We're just going to stick to the New Testament. That's who we are. Jesus is there. Let's do that. Well, that's being unfaithful to what God's called us to do. The Old Testament is just as much God's word, just as authoritative for us as the New Testament is. If we only read the New Testament, then we're missing out on over half of the ways that God has revealed himself through his word. So we must be a people who read both the Old Testament and the New Testament and use it to shape our lives. The second extreme that is a little bit less common around Christians, but still very prevalent, is people who just stick to the Old Testament. And they say, this is how God spoke in the beginning. This is how we've done it forever. This is how you know God has showed me the sacrifices to make and do all those things. I'm going to stick to the Old Testament because I'm not necessarily sure if the New Testament is true. Well, if we do that, if we have the equal and opposite reaction, if we just stick to the Old Testament, then we're missing out on the better revelation of God through the Son. We're missing out on the New Covenant. So let us be people who abide by God's Word from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, and we see how God has revealed Himself from the beginning. We see how from Genesis to Revelation, God has painted and has told this story, this narrative from beginning to end, all leading to Jesus. Let's see the Old Testament for what it is. Oftentimes, we approach the Old Testament with the wrong idea. Yes, the Bible is for our instruction. Yes, we should live our lives based on what the Bible teaches. Yes, the Bible has good lessons for us to learn. But ultimately, often when we approach the Old Testament, we go looking for the moral lesson and not, how does this tell me more about Jesus? How does this reveal to me what Jesus is and His holiness and his salvation. So let us be people from start to finish who love God's word, who we hear him speak through it consistently from beginning to end, and we apply it to our lives. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be done, and we'll all go eat lunch and have a good time and enjoy this cool fall weather. But before we do, before we leave this morning, let's ask ourselves, do we take seriously God's word? Do we take seriously God's word? If we don't, let's make it right before we leave this place. 
Some of you may say, I've never placed my faith in Jesus. I don't even know how to take God's word seriously because I don't have a relationship with him. If that's you this morning, I pray that today would be the day that you would make that decision. I'll pray and then we'll, we'll finish up. God, you're good to us. We're thankful for your word. Thank you for what you teach us in it. Thank you for... The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Oregon City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.